Hello, everybody. This is Sherman. Thank you for being part of this community. I hope your holidays went well and Happy New Year 2022, which is a nice sounding year. I certainly hope it's a lot nicer than last year and the year before that. We're two years into the pandemic. That seems insane. I don't even know what to do with that information. So, okay, today I'm posting an essay. I don't post a lot of essays. I haven't posted a lot of them. I think I'm going to be doing more. And this one is personal, but it's also political. It is, in many ways, an op-ed. I'm responding to the current political climate and the strict binary that's being enforced by all people. All Americans are operating in a binary, or most Americans are operating in a binary. And I think humans tend to be that way anyway. I think it's an age-old ancestral survival instinct. But it doesn't work in contemporary society, I don't think. And it's certainly not benefiting us, especially when it comes to the pandemic. It's so binary, and I I suppose... (laughs) When it comes to a pandemic, binary is necessary to fight it. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm pro-vaccine, pro-booster, pro-CDC, but I also think they've been wrong, and they are wrong. And most of all, I just don't think our collective mental health can stand more shutdowns. It's just impossible. I know my mental health is suffering. And I'm already mentally ill, so it's like piling mental illness on top of mental illness, and I'm being crushed beneath it. And I'm sure many of you, if not most, if not all of you, feel the same way. So this essay, this op-ed, is responding to all that sort of feeling. It goes at its slant, I think, but like Emily Dickinson wrote, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And maybe this isn't slanted at all. Maybe it's quite clear in its, uh, uh, in its <laughs> existence and its behavior and its tools and its outlook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So here it is, and it's called The Patriot Saints of Spokane, Washington. Thirty years ago, while on summer break from college, I went to a small afternoon party at a high school friend's apartment. I'll call him Mark. It wasn't a wild party. We just sat around drinking beers and listening to music, mostly hair metal. A few hours into the party, a white woman stopped by for a surprise visit. I'll call her Michelle. I didn't know her, but my friends did. She smelled of cigarette smoke. Her clothes were too big, like she was a 20-something still dependent on her siblings' hand-me-downs. I recognized her instantly as being a Hilliard hippie, one of the poor white people who lived in Hilliard, a neighborhood in Spokane where most folks lived far below the poverty line. I had Indian cousins who'd married Hilliard hippies, so I was familiar with the type and gently pitied her, if pity can ever be seen as gentle. Imagine being a white person so poor that you inspire the sympathy of a poor reservation Indian. She looked lost and uncomfortable. I said hello, 
and we briefly talked about the Motley Crue song that was playing. She said she couldn't afford to buy their last album, so she had to use their tape deck to record them off the radio. I'm always a little too slow, she said. The DJ says he's playing crew, and I run over to my tape deck and always hit record too late, so I'm missing a few seconds from the beginning of every song. She smiled. Her teeth were chaotic, jagged, and slanted at random angles as if her mouth had been vandalized. I mentioned her physical appearance only because she, a few days later, told Mark, the party host, that I was the ugliest guy she'd ever seen. And then Mark told me, Wow, I said, that hurts my feelings. I thought of a thousand insults that I'd fling her way if she'd happened to show up at that moment. I'd insult her face and teeth, her clothes, her nicotine thick body odor. Most especially, I'd insult her education and intelligence. I'd brag about my summa cum laude college grades and prodigal poetry. She was white trash. I was an indigenous pauper on his way to becoming a literary prince. You okay, Mark asked me. You look pissed. I am pissed, I said. Yeah, that makes sense, he said. But she wants to date you now. She wants to date the ugliest guy in the world, I asked. She doesn't think you're so ugly anymore, he said. Yeah, that's big of her, I said. What changed her mind? You were nice to her. Then my friend told me that Melissa used to date Ted, one of the other guys at the party. Ted destroyed her, Mark said. He cheated on her with two of her best friends. Holy shit, I said. You're joking, right? Nope. True story. Damn, two of them. That's about the worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it's way high on the shit list. I wondered if I could still be friends with Ted after hearing about that cruelty. But Ted moved to Texas not long after that day, and I haven't seen or talked to him since. Okay, I said to Mark. He slept with her best friends. What does that have to do with me? Melissa didn't know Ted was going to be at the party, Mark said, and she said she freaked out when she saw him. She wanted to run away, but she just froze. And then you said hello to her. She was so grateful to you for protecting her. That's it, I asked. She falls in love with the ugliest guy in the world because I was nice to her for about 45 seconds? That's it, Mark said. I wasn't sure then what to make of that moment. I was thinking more about my vanity than about other people's broken hearts. But all these years later, I wonder about Michelle's poor white life. How badly had she been hurt? How lonesome was she? How hungry had she been? How forgotten? How ignored? How mistreated had she been that she'd seen my brief politeness as compelling kindness? I doubt that Melissa has ever escaped Hilliard. That neighborhood is a social and economic trap. I hear it's been somewhat gentrified, but those 40 or so square blocks have always been more of a state of mind than a physical location. I wonder if she's still alive. There's a certain probability that she's a meth addict with a dramatically shortened lifespan. 
And since she's a poor white person from Spokane, I assume that she's a Trump supporter, whether or not she actually votes. I can see her wearing a MAGA hat. I doubt I'd recognize her if we passed on the street, and I doubt she remembers the man she thought was the ugliest, if kindest, Indian in the world. And yes, I would take gentle pity on her again. I'd take pity of her homeless face primarily because she thought I was homely. I'd pity her politics. I'd try to convince her that oppression is just as much about economic class as it is about race and gender. All the while, I'd assume that she voted out of ignorance and miseducation rather than deeply held beliefs. I'd operate as if her Christianity was the wrong kind of Christianity, as if her spirituality was inferior to mine, as if her saints were racist, misogynistic, and homophobic monsters. And yes, I'm exaggerating about the combative and divisive nature of my politics. Because I grew up in small-town eastern Washington still have friends and family who are conservatives, I think I'm far more moderate in my acceptance and tolerance of Republicans than a typical liberal leftist. However, I also believe that I can be the same kind of condescending liberal asshole as all the other condescending liberal assholes. Like everybody else, I think my politics are the best politics. I think every politician should govern like I would if elected. Yes. I think every conservative white person should have the same politics as a liberal, urban, elite Indian like me. So here's the thing. I think Melissa might be more accurate about choosing her friends and enemies than I am about choosing mine. <laughs>